0: wrong. Podcast of course.
1: I am and ready to record with you
0: with you and you and you guys listening at home in five, four, three, two. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody to the Savage Cromcast, Season twelve, episode five. Owls hoot in the daytime. I'm Josh.
2: I'm Jonathan. And I'm Luke.
0: and we are your old grizzled, Uh, hobo protectors living out in the woods at the base of a mountain making sure that no one gets in to let the demons out uh, or goes in to be burned alive by Moloch, the devil within the mountain, and we are the Cromcast.
2: We smell richly of sardine poke cooked in a hot rock (laughs) fire.
1: (laughs) I described that dinner to to to, to Liz, my spouse, and she, she cracked she cracked it up, man. Like she was like, "That, that is gross." Like <laughs> tomato sardines and cornbread and like a warm beer. <laughs>
0: Listen, have you ever eaten uh, uh, potted meat?
1: Indeed, yeah.
0: Yeah, John, you ever eaten potted meat? I don't think so. You don't think so? You would remember, so no. <laughs> yeah. uh, how about Vienna sausages, or as they're called in East Kentucky, Viennese? <laughs>
1: Right here, this guy's done it too. I love those,
0: yeah, you have uh what kind of crackers did you have with him?
1: so I would do so I grew up in Arkansas, and my grandpa he uh he would uh clear land for the forest service and run a dozer and like build ponds and stuff, and so I would go out with him occasionally and just sort of like sit around and like I, I had these memories of being like six or seven and like playing with a dozer kind of thing and so we would eat vianney sausages and saltines and like I would have a a a can of like Mountain Dew uh and those were like the quintessential like components of the of the you know the the ice box lunch that you would carry so vianney sausages sleeve of saltines you know soda pops
0: there it is sounds like (laughs) <laughs> yep, there. Uh, yep, we had the same childhood.
1: That's good stuff. How about you, John? Ever had vealies?
2: Once again, I am the outlier here.
1: Oh man, you so so go go to your uh, your your Stop and Shop and get yourself some uh, potted meat, man, and smear it on a, a salty cracker. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I- and gonna, go go out to a sweaty sweaty location wherever yeah, you can yeah. find in the middle of the day and just sweat a little bit and eat it because it's like I feel like the salt of the of the meal might offset that sweat. Okay, mm-hmm. and then
2: go to the yeah. hospital after or
0: no 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 hospital there's
2: no, uh, there's no hospitals. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, we're gonna go fishing. I think that's the thing. We're gonna take a fishing trip.
2: <laughs>
0: we're gonna get real hot. We're gonna eat our our potted meat and crackers and viennese. And we're gonna drink our cold Mountain Dews
2: in the Chromecast yeah. canoe.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Sure.
1: <laughs> that's uh, we need to buy a Chromecast carno- uh, canoe. That, that's <laughs> going right there.
0: The Chromenu. Yeah. The Crom- <laughs> That's awful. How are you guys doing?
2: I mean, clearly deranged at this point. Yeah, yeah. man.
0: We've spent a couple a- of hours just raging. Yeah. Uh, but but now we're here to talk about a story. Um, you guys got anything to uh, imbibe during this podcasting session?
1: I've seen Luke drinking on some stuff.
0: I saw I'm that, te- too.
1: I'm teetotaling, dude. I'm drinking seltzer waters. Are you? Are you? Yeah. No, I'm, that's a lie. <laughs> 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 no, I have a, a six-pack of uh, Sweetwater IPAs. Hmm. I love, I love the, the Sweetwater IPAs. It's one of my favorites. I mean, maybe it makes me a, a, a basic a basic beer Fan, but they're they're delicious. They're, they really are. Like they're a little bit uh, uh, more citrusy than say like your uh, your Sierra Nevadas, like the Torpedo or the Paleales. I love them though. So that's what I'm drinking. Yeppers. What about you, Josh? Uh,
0: well well, Luke, I've been having High Lives, <laughs> but also Heaven Hill. So Triple H.
1: Ooh. Nice. Dude, it's just, the game. We got the game.
2: <laughs> uh, that's what I ordered. The game. <laughs>
1: John, what are you drinking?
2: I had a Kentucky Kolsch Nice,
1: yeah. nice, dude. Keep yeah, it so fresh. Is
0: is that what Kentucky <laughs> ale became? Kentucky Kolsch
1: Or did no, it become they become the red ale. They, right? That's their. That's their. They call it their light beer, but it's a different yeast strain. Obviously, but it's like Altec's like light beer offering. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's it's Quite not scary. the it's not the regular old like all tech ale. Okay.
0: I wasn't it's sure totally it's different. I, I thought I saw a pretty major redesign on the, the bottle label for Kentucky Ale. Um I haven't had any in a long time, so
1: so that that could be true. I've I've not paid attention like, in the COVID world, like, what's happened with their labels. So yeah. maybe they've changed, like, what they're brewing. But at least, like, pre-COVID, there was regular old Kentucky Ale and then their Kolsch, they tried to call it. I mean, it was their light, but it was it was just their Kolsch beer.
0: Yeah. And I also learned on the tour there that you can't actually call it a Kolsch unless it's made in a certain region in, in Germany. Is that true? Cologne? Yeah, I Maybe. Uh, I could just be misremembering something. But I thought I remembered them saying they had to call it a Kolsch-style ale
2: and not it does an say, actual... It does say Kolsch ale on the side.
0: Does it? Okay.
2: And Luke is correct, apparently. It's a beer originating in Cologne, Germany. There you go.
1: <laughs> I feel like we've uh, had this combo like a previous iteration. Like This is another another uh year in the matrix (laughs) we've
0: we've gone too long (laughs) we're talking about the same things over and over okay let's let's move on very quickly then (laughs)
1: let's skip out of this
0: (laughs) uh do you guys have a one thing What is your one thing?
1: This guy. Okay. So uh, my one thing, I want to do two things. I'm going to do two things. <laughs> it's okay. Like between now and when we've recorded, uh, it's okay. So I don't have to offer much in the way of uh, statements about this one thing, but the, uh, and at the at the time that this recording comes out to everybody – it will be old news, but the the fourth Run the Jewels album is essentially like the soundtrack to 2020, I think. So we'll just leave it at that. Uh, and it's amazing. So listen to Run the Jewels if you haven't before. Uh, give it a give it a try. Killer Mike and LP just <laughs> they're prescient and they see they see shit through like smoke and mirrors and into the future and they're they're beautiful uh but the thing that i guess is my one thing of the past like weeks since you and uh uh uh, me have talked josh and john is uh is is battlestar galactica which is a little bit older have you guys ever watched battlestar galactica
0: i haven't uh the mini series but not the series series
1: Okay, so you've watched the 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 miniseries, Josh. What about you, John? I haven't seen any of it. Oh man! So I watched the miniseries of the BSG uh, myself over a single night, and it's lovely. I I I totally knew that I would love it. It's one of those things that was just in the hopper, and it's like I don't know. I'll watch that at some point. I think I even owned a DVD of the miniseries at some point. Like I had a single DVD release of it and i never sat down and watched it totally through uh but i i mainlined it night before last and it's beautiful it's it's i i knew i would love it and i'm excited to watch four seasons of bsg (laughs) the reasons the reasons that i uh got into it were twofold one uh jason ray carney made some remark on discord about like he he posted a picture of uh of uh, uh, Starbuck Starbucks like, and I was like, oh yeah, th- that's the the character that I remember from BSG as being the the badass, you know, chick with the cigar. Uh, and that that was one thing. And then I'm pretty sure the internet was like, oh yeah, you're interested in Battlestar Galactica. Oh yeah, here's this other thing. And then it noted that. At least at the time of this recording, the sci fi channel allows you to stream all of it for free. Oh. So that is what precipitated me clicking on my browser and watching <laughs> the first the first mini series, which is three hours, and probably tomorrow night I'll jump into the first season. So I fully intend on mainlining BSG over the next few like the next week or so.
0: Nice. It was on Netflix. Is it not anymore?
1: It's not anymore. Okay. But 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 the Sci-Fi Channel released it all for freezies on their webpage again at the time of this recording.
2: Nice. At the yep. time of the COVID when TV was
1: free. Yep. Yeah. So so that's my one thing. What about you, Josh?
2: I
0: have been reading a lot of various. Uh, <laughs> Uh, internet blogs and wikis about the witcher. Um, because I downloaded and played the witcher three and I am enamored with this world now. Um, I, I liked it before. I think I told you guys I'd, I'd been listening to the short stories, um, from, from audible, but, uh, haven't really dived into any of the novels or anything. And still haven't watched all of the Netflix show. Um, but the game is just so so cool, and so I, in my in my wiki diving, uh, found that there was a Dark Horse comic uh, written by uh, Paul Tobin and illustrated by Mike Mignola on the covers, and then Joe Chiaro, um on the uh, interiors and he conjures Mignola in, in a really effective way. And so the, the comics that I've been reading came out in 2014, and the collection is called House of Glass. The Witcher, colon, House of Glass. And uh, it's rad. It's it's just great. I, I think the Witcher is such a universal character. Um, Geralt of Rivia is, is fascinating. He's like this uh, kind of... Lone wolf bastard character with a heart of gold, um, kind of trope, and uh, he takes all the things that we like about Solomon Kane and Hellboy and you know any monster hunter that you can think of off the top of your head and rolls them all together into one, uh, into this interesting world that's informed by real life folklore and monsters that you have been obsessed with since you're a kid. And it just rolls it all up in this awesome, gritty fantasy world. And, man, uh, Mignola's covers on this are, are, are great, and the interior art is great as well. Um, so I want to read the rest of these Dark Horse Witcher uh, miniseries. This is a five-issue miniseries, and I'm on issue three, and I, I love it. Uh, so you guys check it out. It's uh, The Witcher colon House of Glass
1: yeah the the coloring I just pulled it up the, the the colors look really really good this is awesome
0: yeah it's great man uh and and it's all sponsored by this company called cd project red uh who is the video game studio that produces the Witcher games and I also just found out they own uh gog.com good old games.com.
1: oh, oh and, cool
0: yeah and so often Excuse me. Oftentimes, you can find the Witcher games uh, on sale through GOG, um, and they have all all three of them plus the ancillary Witcher titles. So, cool. so yeah, man, I, I'm just uh, I am I am neck deep in Witcher lore.
1: <laughs> nice, man.
0: Yeah. So uh, be be expecting someday down the line. I don't know when, but someday uh, I, I want to talk about those Witcher stories on the show.
2: That'll be a season unto itself.
0: Maybe. John.
2: I'll round us out. Uh, I'm also doing a comic book. I've been reading March um, by John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, and Nate Powell. Uh, It's a three-book series. It's all about John Lewis's life, and it's kind of bookended by the inauguration of Barack Obama as president. So John Lewis, if you've not heard of him, he is sort of the last standing member of the big six of the civil rights movement in the 60s. He was a student activist at the time and became a leader and stood alongside Martin Luther King and those other leaders of the movement. And this is just all about how he got involved in that, how his religion kind of drove him that direction and how he became sort of a civil rights icon over the course of his life. It's really, really well done. I like the art, Nate Powell, he's done a few other things. It's all in black and white, but I think that kind of adds to the atmosphere of it since it's a story about black and white People interacting for civil rights and the violence that white people used to inflict upon these folks during the civil rights movement, and perhaps still do to this day. Uh, I don't know how politically you're going to allow me to get on the show, but uh, it's really good. It's really eye opening. It shows depictions of the violence, shows depictions of the murderers that happened to some of the freedom writers and folks down there, and I think everybody should read it. He said that he was moved to make his life story a graphic novel. Based on the success of a comic book about Martin Luther King that came out back when he was a kid. so Or back when he was a student, I should say.
0: Can you give us wow. the, t- the title of it again? It's called March.
1: And who published
2: it? It was from Top Shelf Press. Top
1: Shelf. Yep. Do you know about the year that it came out? Is um, it new
2: or is so the first it? A one little bit came old. out in 2013, and I think the last one came out in 16 or 17.
1: Okay. Yeah. Are they
2: all like hardbound? They're all kind of flexi-bound books, is what I have found. I haven't seen a hard one before, but that could be okay. out there somewhere. I got a little collector's box of them at Half Price Books once. Nice, yeah. man. Yeah. Cool.
0: Um, get as political as you want, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, I, that I did it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in it.
0: We're in a time where I think you can't not be political, yeah. honestly. Yeah. And 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 stories like that deserve to be read. And uh, I think it's awesome that it's presented in that format.
2: Yeah, it, and it's really moving just to be able to see it. Because it's one thing, I think, to read a biography. But it's another thing to see a man tell his story with some graphic storytellers and probably have a lot of input into how things were depicted. So he could offer up some of the details that maybe – would be lost if two other people had just adapted his life story for him. And mm-hmm. it's, I think everybody should be reading it especially right now. It's, it's just yeah. not like the right time to read it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Awesome.
2: We call that one. Thing.
0: Guys, this is a literary podcast where we talk about stories and this season we're talking about, Stories by Manly Wade Wellman that feature his character John—I almost said John the Baptist, John (laughs) the Balladier,
1: the Silver John, Silver John, John of of the Ways, John of the Truth, John of John of the Woods, the yeah, the Explorer, the (laughs)
0: Crocans. Right, Uh, and this time we're talking about a story that was published a little bit later on. In a uh, collection of short stories This story that we're talking about tonight Owl's Hoot in the Daytime Was first published in a collection Called Dark Forces uh, Published uh, By Viking Press And edited by Kirby McCauley And we were talking about this before we recorded And Luke you have a
1: copy of this Yeah yeah I picked this up At half price At some point uh, over the past few years, but this is one of the uh, like main anthologies that kicks kicked off, I guess, the '80s, right? Like, so, so the the, the story with Dark Forces is, is that uh, it was a variety of of I think it's I think it's all new materials uh, that were submitted, and there's a laundry list of people here. There's like Ted Klein. Uh, and of course, like like the, 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 the capper is uh, Stephen King doing The Mist, and there's those types of people that are like more contemporary publishers or, or writers. But there's also like old school people like Theodore Sturgeon and Ramsey Campbell and Clifford Simak and Russell Kirk. Like those are and those are old folks like Ray Bradbury. Loads of old people, too. So this is kind of a, a seminal publication of horror, like kind of at the turn or the passing of the torch between uh, one generation and another. And there's, there's a lot of reviews of Dark Forces that are out there. Of course, like we've talked about the Too Much Horror Fiction blog. Like You can check out uh, that, that page uh, to get a good review of the content that's there. But dot dot dot. One of the things that that's included is this this weirdo kind of manly Wade Wellman Silver John story, which is kind of out of time, right?
0: Yeah, it it certainly is. But I think it's it's neat. Like in terms of when this was published in Wade Wellman's lifetime, he passed away in later in the eighties, I think in eighty six. Um, so it's it's cool to me that. That Silver John was still heavily on his mind, you know, even you know, onto his later years.
2: Yeah, yeah. This seems like a character that must have been very personal and very beloved by him. Like it, it seems like it probably represents him in a way. It's it's that interest in folk
0: studies and folkways and and music of the mountains. I think yeah. that that uh, Wellman actually had and, and exhibited in his lifetime. In any other like upfront sort of uh, meta discussion about the story before we dive into the story itself? Uh,
1: not necessarily. I think this is I think this is a uh, a different Silver John story. It's kind of cool between this and the last one. Like we're getting a variety of archetypes here, but we can just jump into the content and 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 go with what uh, what's presented here because. Uh, Silver John is a different he, he does a lot of the same things but he's in a different situation
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, I I can see what you're saying I guess that, or it, knowing that it's one of the later stories published about the character it does have sort of a not like a Dark Knight Returns feel but there, there was a sense to me of finality to some of this like the fact that there was this proposal at one point that he could stay and take over for the old man like it did yeah. seem it seems like the last Silver John story. I don't know if it really is, but it's like a really tough mission. There's a possibility of peace for him to like, just watch over this cave. Like maybe this is the final answer he needs to find in the mountains.
0: Yeah. It, it seems like th- there were a handful of others published uh, before um, the end for, for Wellman looking at it. Where did she wander? which is a story that I think we're going to cover this season is uh, published in '87, and uh, that would have been published posthumously. So he would have been working on that uh, in the hospital there toward the end of his life. But it, it is cool to see this this sort of. I, I didn't think about it like that, John. Like this was the uh, the Dark Knight Returns <laughs> version of of John. This, but it does seem like this is a story being told by a, a man in old age looking back at his adventures that he had especially
2: yeah. based on the the actual the text message that you sent us the other night the screen grab you took of one of the songs that he sings in the story i think maybe that would be a good jumping off point if you could talk about why that grabbed a hold of you so much that's one of okay. the things about this it seemed like
0: yeah so at this point in the story john has reached his destination <clears throat> at this cabin uh, out in the woods, out, out at the base of this mountain, in this area where he's heard stories about owls hooting in the daytime. And he's met up with uh, an older gentleman named Maltby Sanger and his uh, pet possum, Ung. Who's
2: and, as big as a dog. It should
0: yeah, Ong yeah. is as big as Sassafras is. <laughs> uh, and they they've had some dinner. Uh, they made some uh, uh, corn pone, right? Some some fried hoe cakes there on the, the rock slab next to the fire. They warmed to up some,
1: some sardines. Yeah.
2: Some
0: sardines. Yeah, they roasted <laughs> sardines. They, they ate some tomatoes from uh, Sanger's Garden and uh, they had a couple of warm beers that John dug out of his poke. And John's just sort of picking his guitar, and uh, the first song that comes out. Is this old song, and it's it goes. We sang good songs that came out new, but now they're old amongst the young. And when we're gone, it's just a few will know the songs that we have sung. Like this, this was Tolkien-esque to me. This uh, bespeaks the elves in Tolkien stories realizing that their time in Middle Earth is over, and that the the old must pass for the new to rise, right? Like they're, they're passing away from the world and they realize it and they're lamenting it, but they're also in this weird, bittersweet way, celebrating it and and acknowledging it, uh, that the old ways, the old songs are, are gone and forgotten. And, and the new songs are what are on people's minds and coming from their, their mouths. What did you guys think? I, I don't know. I, Ashley and I had a, uh, fire pit last night and i was reading this next to the fire as the sun was going down and and that line uh that that uh lyric uh i read while like the last glimmers of of the the sunset were sort of peeking down over the horizon so it just really grabbed me in this in this very sort of um I don't know, liminal uh, sort of way, like this transition to bring, bring things back to uh, our last episode, like just the sadness of knowing that your time is, is numbered. Your, your days are numbered and, and they're going to pass away, you know, like the leaves in the fall.
2: And it speaks to sort of the cultural memory aspect of the silver John character. Like this is a man going around collecting stories that could be easily lost and tales that could be, Gone from the the discourse if he doesn't get them and spells and songs and all these kinds of things like he's a collector, and without him they all go away, and if the the take we're taking of this is him kind of older, like it's even sadder if he's the last holder of these things and there's nobody to come after him, uh, yeah it, it it's a very sad moment in the story I think and it's sort of a it stands out I think amongst the Silver John stuff because. He's not a happy go lucky character necessarily, but he is kinda of, He is kind of, I guess, a happy go lucky character.
0: It's weird because he seems very carefree, but he is aware of the worries of the world.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> so.
0: so yeah, I, I I took a picture of that. And sent it to my comrades and said, this, this really hit me pretty hard tonight. Um, I don't know. Maybe I came to grips with my own mortality last night. <laughs> but so so we're out in, in Appalachia like we always are. John is wandering through this, this area of the mountains looking for this place where the owls hoot in the daytime. He comes across this cabin and this guardian of this uh, this potential portal to another world yeah. to to the primeval linkages between modern day and the the fiery origins of the planet. What did you guys make of uh, this story what what stood out to you?
2: I like this world building that we're getting here or just this like slice of the pie I guess because John is wandering in to collect this folklore. I don't, he doesn't seem to fully comprehend maybe what he's walking into until he really gets there. But once he finds that the magic is emanating from this cabin and he does seem to initially be like, Oh, I'm going to sleep the night in that cabin uh, until he meets multi Sang Sanger Mult B Sanger. Sanger, Malt B. Sanger uh, it's hard to say who, who convinces him that that is an evil place. And you just know that he's, he's going to have to experience the cave before the story is over or the cabin and try and figure out what's going on. And I thought it was really interesting just the way that there's some like Judeo Christian mythology bleeding in and also some Appalachian horror seeping in, like going down into the earth is sort of an Appalachian terror trope. I think, is that fair to say, Josh? I would say
0: absolutely. Uh, just the the fact that, you know, many people's livelihoods were made by going into the maw of a mine that that extends back into a mountain to extract, you know, the coal that you, you know is going to end up uh, causing you pain later in your life, right. either from back pain, uh, from bending over and, and swinging the, the pick or loading up the, the cart that's going to be drawn out of of the mine or even the in, inhalation of the coal dust that's going to lead potentially to black lung or, or other respiratory issues um, you know it's it's just sort of looked at with this grim determination right yeah. like this is what my my daddy did this is what I'm going to do um, and it keeps me home it keeps me here
2: well and I think there's an even more primordial terror. You're going into the earth to steal something from her, and sometimes she steals back. Like she keeps people down there with her every so often, uh, with a cave-in and what have you. So, I thought that the merging of those two fears and those two terror tropes was very interesting, and the way that Manly Wade Wellman kind of threads it all together was pretty dope. Now, now that now that you mention
0: it. Uh, the fact that we see this demonic figure luring John into the cave later in the story with, with gems and jewels and potential earthly riches kind of speaks to that element of going into the earth, going into the mine for uh, you know your livelihood, for your money, being tempted in there yep. so that you can survive. Yeah.
2: And I thought it was also interesting that we we are repeatedly referred to Moloch, like this idea that the figure or the problem inside of this cave is an ancient demon named Moloch that is brought up in the Bible several times. Luke, are you a Moloch fan?
1: Well, I, just in as far as it like grounds it to, uh, like, as you said, Judeo Christian sort of like a timestamp, like, that, that that's what we get here, right? Like yeah. this is, whether or not that character is Moloch, he is the representation of that point
2: of view. Yeah. And Moloch is an awful creature or an awful thing. If you look at the mythology, like I poked around on the internet a little bit and read a few things about Moloch. Cause I remember him from Catholic school, but I didn't remember a whole lot about him. And it sounds like he was a, bull looking fellow who was made of gold that they would they would burn children in a furnace underneath which is pretty bad (laughs) it (laughs) is pretty bad and i thought finding that out was pretty interesting to compare to the creature that were described in this which is black with snaky skin and pitchfork hands it seems like a different elemental being to me than what Moloch is traditionally represented as what did you think of the scene where the, the eye coals are peering out at him and then they start to form and move out?
0: I love it. And I, I love the fact that we, we have this, um, this sort of analogy to fire, right? Like the, the fiery origins of the planet and the, the, the allusion to the molten core of the earth. And this is after dinner and Sanger and John are having a conversation about this uh, this cabin, right? This house that's up against the rocks, up against the mountain. And uh, Maltby says, John, that there's just a house front built up against the rock, and maybe not by no man's hands, no such thing. I reckon it was put there to toll folks in. I've uh, But I've been here all these years to warn folks off, the way I tried to warn you. He looked at me, and so did Ong, Next to him, till I seen you was uh, set in your mind to stay, so i let you. I studied the open door holes so dark inside. Why should folks be told in, Mr. Singer? I've thought on that and come to reckon the mountain folks, uh, the mountain wants folks right into its heart or its belly. He sort of stared his words into me. Science allows this here whole earth started out as just a ball of fire. The outside cooled down, water come in for the sea, and trees and living things got borne onto the land. But they say the fire is still inside, and fire has got to have something to feed on. That is awesome, man. That is evocative. And, and reading this next to a fire pit while I'm feeding it more wood to keep it going uh, just hammered this point home. Like This demon has to eat just like a fire has to have fuel.
2: I did like that part a lot. I, there was a couple of scientific mentions that I thought Baird mentioning on our show. There was that one where they talk about the molten ball of a planet. But then Molt Sanger talks about the, the lunar landings. He talks about, do you think yeah. heaven is getting further and further away? It can't be the sky anymore because we chased through that and then we broke through and got all the way to the moon. So, so heaven has to be way out in space somewhere. And then John kind of yeah. points out but we can't get away from hell because it's under our feet. Uh, I thought that was a really poignant part. We're saying like we scared away the heavens and God maybe with our exploits, but we can never get too far away from hell because it's just right below our feet. We can't get get escaping from it. Yeah. So
1: so so that's something that I think is really interesting about uh, Wellman's work. So we've we've talked about it a little bit, but it really strikes me. So I read this story, but I also read another one of his called, uh, coming to my parlor. And between the two of those, there's, there's a strong scientific bent and it just strikes me that he is a writer that's able to blend like the mystic and the scientific simulti- simultaneously. And specifically in the last couple stories prior to this one, there are like very direct linkages between the scientific and the spooky stuff that he's laying out. Like he's not someone that shies away from uh outright actual scientific writing. Like he doesn't it's not hand-wavy. It's not dismissive. It is legit.
2: Do I does he have a scientific background at all? I can I don't yeah.
0: Not that I know of. Like He, he was a, a reporter and also right. a folklorist, right? Right.
2: I'd forgotten about the reporter part.
0: Yeah. So he knows how to report technical information, certainly. Go. Right? Um, and I don't know enough about Wade Wellman to know about his interest in, in science. But I know that his descriptions of, of the weird in this story are, are top-notch.
2: And I right. loved,
0: I loved this this notion of this bush with three or four different colors of flowers on it, and John's retort that sassafras trees have three different types of leaves on them. So why 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 is that so unnatural? So that was pretty interesting to me.
2: And then he describes uh, it. He gets all dendrological on him. Yeah.
0: yeah. A mitten leaf, a uh, toadfoot leaf next to it, and just a plain smooth edge leaf. And that's sassafras.
1: I always said it was a ghost leaf rather than the the toad foot. Like what he calls toad foot is the the sort of three pronged, like like Casper, the friendly ghost. Oh yeah, uh-huh.
0: yeah, that makes sense. I remember always hearing the story about a uh, uh, someone who was born with uh, only one one thumb, and his hand looked like this. And he asked, he prayed to, uh, uh, no, 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 he was born with no thumbs. And so like this. And then he prayed for a thumb and was granted one. And then he decided that if he had two thumbs, one on either side of his hand, he could be an even better hunter and a a better warrior. And so he was granted that extra thumb, but then he found he was so clumsy that he couldn't fire an arrow anymore. He couldn't shoot, he couldn't ride, he couldn't do anything. And so he was going to commit suicide, but he was stopped by the spirits and turned into this tree with these three different leaves as a warning to everyone else to be happy with who you are and what you have.
2: Huh. That's a good one. Thanks.
0: That's an abbreviated version of the story. I've, I've <laughs> it. But yeah, that's whenever I think of the, the sassafras tree and see those leaves, I think about that story from when I was a kid.
2: That was a little silver John moment you had there, Josh. Oh, thanks.
0: Yeah, it was. <laughs> what did you guys think about his confrontation with this thing? And and John, to your question earlier, those those eyes in the darkness.
2: So I really liked the buildup to it. Like him kind of doing this doorway dance with it and watching it form and materialize, to me was very spooky. And it really set a mood of like, this is an ethereal thing. This is a thing of another world. It is liminal, as we've talked about multiple times throughout okay, the Okay, yeah. and. It is transitioning into a way that he can perceive it. And then once he is able to, it's hard to understand what he's looking at. And I think that confusion kind of comes across. Like he can't really tell you what it is. He doesn't know if it's Moloch. He just knows that it's really scary and weird looking. I thought that the buildup was great, but then coming down the other side of the mountain, the fight was a little less satisfying to me than some of the other ones that we've had like the quarter that turns into the the george washington golem and all those things like those were that was really cool this one the discovery that the door is across that can push the monster back and then he he slams it over a hole with the monster down in it and weighs it down am i did i understand the action sequence it, it seems
0: like the monster, the, the demon, changed physics in such a way that the, the hallway turned into a, a, a vertical shaft, okay. right? Like, yeah. that, that's what it seemed like to me is that, that John was walking and then suddenly he was falling and he caught himself yeah, and was, was able to sort of use the door as a cover for that hole and then pile the jewels on, like right. the gems that the monster, the demon was trying to tempt him in with. Uh, to keep him out uh, from from coming out of that hole.
2: What did you think about all that? That yeah, he was locked in.
0: Yeah, and and so we get this this cool scene of like I I guess I thought that Maltby Sanger all along was going to be in league with this guy, oh. uh, and I was really I was really glad that he wasn't at the end. Uh-huh. Um, but he goes in and piles a bunch of dirt on top of the the pile of gems. So that no one will be <laughs> tempted to take the gems away and potentially release the demon.
1: It seemed, that seems a little bit weak, but I'll go with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you got to do you got to do something. He's playing yeah. triage, right? Like, there's a demon in there. You got to hide the gems.
1: But the final the final notes of him saying like, "Nah, eh, you know, I can like put you in here." That's that's the gold of the story. To me,
0: the the ceiling of the demon inside, or what do you mean?
1: No, no, Sanger saying like I, you know, I could have like traded places, and you oh. could you could, have, you could have you could have been stuck here.
0: Uh, yeah, if I'd have asked you to stay, you'd have stayed.
1: Yeah, like that, like like that kind of statement is to me like the real meat and potatoes of it. It, it boils down to how. Uh, Silver John treated him early on and the overall arc of like their story and the fact that uh, he's an old ass man, but it really comes down to like that, that story of apart from the big bad, like how Silver John treated like another, another uh, NPC within the story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If he had been, uh, you know, a shit heel to, to Sanger, then uh Sanger might have just you know offed him in his sleep or or taken off or or something like it it would have ended up different but uh our buddy Silver John is uh a band of the people right like he doesn't poke fun
2: right
0: he doesn't uh, from what we've seen he doesn't take advantage he he doesn't uh covet. He doesn't do anything that's that would be considered you know not holy. He he is a, a holy wanderer in this in this uh sinful world, I guess. And to me, this reminded me of a Solomon Cain story, and one in particular that uh, Luke liked called The Footfalls Within. Remember that one, Luke? Uh-huh. Where where Cain heard the uh the demon that was kind of uh inside the the behind the uh the wall that that they were trying to open. Uh this reminded me quite a lot of that. No reason. I just thought of it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, this the story is very short and it's very matter of fact, like the other Silver John stories have been. Um, and we've talked about the this kind of admixture of science and mysticism or science and religion we've talked about the the demon itself and and what it might represent have we left anything out was there anything else you guys thought of in terms of this short story that we read the owls what about the owls how do they what's the folklore excuse for the owls hooting in the daytime
2: they're not supposed to hoot in the daytime it's supposed to be a that's a bad thing Is it a bad thing, necessarily? Well, it goes against the laws of nature.
0: But isn't there this... uh, Don't they give this folklore explanation for why an owl might be hooting?
2: Well, they say something about uh, somebody maybe losing their virginity.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Which makes
2: Sanger say that owls must keep plenty busy.
0: Exactly, yeah. So uh, it says, there's a saying amongst folks here and yonder... um, Let's see. It's that uh, maidens are losing their virginity virginity every time an owl hoots, and Sanger says, "Well, the owls must be plenty bu- busy. That explains that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I thought that was a, a cool, yeah. little bit of, of wry humor from from our uh, author Wade Wellman.
2: It was pretty funny, but no, I think um, we covered the we covered it all pretty good. Yeah. We found out if Al's hoot in the daytime. We saw and pet a giant possum that looked like a dog. And yeah. we chased Moloch back into his hidey hole on the ground.
0: Yeah. Left him there. Yep. Trapped him with the, the sign of the cross. With
2: eight pound emeralds and rubies toppled over on top of him.
0: Which is <laughs> ironic, right? That's an ironic way to trap a demon. Right. So, final analysis, final thoughts. Did you guys like this story?
1: I, I, did, I did like it uh i thought it was fun i don't necessarily think it's better than the uh the previous stories we talked about but i do think that this is equally engaging
0: cool john what about you
2: i also dug it i, I thought it was pretty good i put it up i wouldn't put it at top but uh the setting the unique character of Sangi. And or Sanger, Maltby Sanger. And, Maltby. Maltby Sanger and the possum. Old Maltby. Uh, the Ugg. Um. The, the Ugg. Uh, and the buildup to seeing the demon in the earth and some of that world building, I was all on board for. So yeah, I really liked it. I really liked it.
0: Yeah, I did too. I, I liked the the creepy element of running into this, this, you know, biblical situation that you were not expecting, yet being so confident in your abilities, being so confident in your your own self, comfortable with yourself—that's John, right? Like right. he just is comfortable in his own skin, and that comfort and that knowledge of himself allows him to face the demon and best it. And and I thought that was pretty neat. Um, but again, that quote about the the fire always needing something to feed on. Man, that that is uh, top-notch uh, horror writing. I think that's that's setting the mood for yeah. sure.
2: So where are we heading next, partners?
0: Next time on the Chromecast, we're doing one more mainly Wade Wellman Silver John story, and that is where did she wander? Uh, wherein John investigates the hanging of a witch and finds something more than he expected. Uh, after that, we'll be uh, diving into the Crooked Man a comic about Hellboy, the comic book character you guys might have heard of. He's had a movie. Who who comes to Appalachia. Um, And then we're going to round up the the season, round round it up, uh, haul it out, finish it up. I don't know what I'm saying anymore, John. Uh, With the uh, Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which we were talking about at the beginning of the recording before we really got started. Nice. Yeah. So I'm psyched to get into all that. So we're closing in on the end of the Manly Road. Uh, only a few more stops left. And next time it is Where Did She wander? Woo! Yeah.
2: Where can the people find us?
0: Uh, well, they can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can call us at 859 429 crom And we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at thecromcast. And uh, you can call us. Leave us a voicemail or cuss at us if you want to. That's 859 <laughs> 429
2: But we don't always listen.
0: No. No, like Crom, like we don't listen. Praying does no good.
2: So be and careful of, of random cabins on the mouths of caves while you're in your travels.
0: Yeah, listen, if you're hiking the Appalachian Trail and you find a cabin like this, stay away from it.
2: Yep. Grab us a jewel if you do go in. but.
0: Yeah, bring it back.
2: Size
1: of a pot bottle.
0: Mm-mm. That'll fund us in uh, high lives for days.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we'll see you all a little bit further down that rustic trail, that forested road, that manly road. Later.
2: Turn down the power a little bit and we'll see if that works. Okay. The power. The power. Recall the the power. Turn down the power.